You're listening to a sermon by Kevin Dane, Associate Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, good morning. Morning, New Life. You all get gold stars coming out today. I told John and Krista on the way in, I'm slightly embarrassed this morning. I was born and raised in the upper Midwest, and I know that if it was 50 degrees in January back home, I'd be wearing shorts, but I'm cold. So I'm a disgrace to my people back in the Midwest. I apologize. Um, Well, as Pastor James said, uh, Pastor Ted uh, had some things come up, was not able to, to, to... be here and preaching. He's here, but he's not able to preach this morning. And so I have the opportunity to open God's word with you. And uh, in, in God's providence, uh, I was asked to, to preach for a church in Portland, Oregon last Sunday uh, via Zoom, made the travel easy. And um, it's a church that, that has, has decided they want to be more intentional about their ministry to, to individuals and families impacted by disability. And uh, so I was blessed to be a part of their worship and, and to look at God's word with them. So I, I, I already had this sermon on hand, and during the week I had asked Ted and Robin if at some point in the future I might be able to preach this sermon to New Life. Uh, as it turns out, on Friday evening, Ted said, yeah, how about Sunday? So here we go. Uh, it was, as you know, it wasn't scheduled to be uh, the, the topic for our sermon this Sunday, but in God's providence it is. And I'm glad to be here with you today. Uh, we, were, we will be looking at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 16. So I'm going to ask you to, uh, it's not in the bulletin today, we weren't able to, to make that adjustment, uh, but go ahead and get out your Bibles or your phones and, and get it queued up. And before, before, we, before we get to the text, I, I, there's a few opening remarks, and I want to start really by talking to our youngest worshipers who are here, those that didn't go off to children's church, but our youngest worshipers, kids. I, I want to just say a few things to you before we even look at the Bible passage today. You know, my, my family, my kids are grown now, but when they were young, uh, we often for family time around the table, we worked on memorizing the catechism, not the shorter catechism, not the larger catechism, not even the children's catechism, but the My First Catechism, uh, which is, I think, brilliantly beautiful in, in its simplicity. And I know a lot of you have also been, uh, have become familiar with at least some of it. You know, it was fits and starts, but uh, we always started with the first two questions, and I think those are the two that we have memorized at this point. Um, but, so let me ask you, if you know this, the answer to this catechism question, go ahead and shout it out. The first question is, who made you? God, I heard it, God, right, exactly, God made you. And the second question, what else did God make? God made all things, that's right. You guys are awesome, you did a great job. You're right, God, God made you. And he makes everyone in the world, and we know that God never makes mistakes. So when you look around, you, you kids, when you look around, you realize that God made every one of us different and he made every one of us special. So some of us can see far away. Some of us need glasses like I do. And, and some of us can't see at all. Some of us can run and jump. 
Some of us might need braces on our legs to help us walk, and some of us might need a wheelchair to help us get around. You know, some of us can talk all day long, some of us have a harder time getting our words out, and some of us can't talk at all. You know, there are some of us who really like loud, scary noises, and some of us are very frightened by those same noises. I heard someone just scared by my saying that. The point is that God makes all of us different. And in our schools and in our workplaces, we often say that someone who can't see or hear or walk has a disability. So as a church at New Life, we're trying to figure out how we can get better at welcoming everybody into our church, no matter what their abilities are. And so this morning, as we look at the Bible, we're going to see that Jesus loved to spend time with people of all kinds of abilities, and he welcomed them to be part of our family. So that's what we're going to be doing today as we look at the Bible, at Luke's Gospel. So we're thinking about a big topic, disability ministry, and it's an area of ministry that our church, New Life, has been working on in, with intentionality for about seven years now. And you might recall that uh, when, we, when, we came, when we thought together of who we want to be as a church and put together that proposal that we called the, the five-year plan, really sort of the five-year vision, the five-year goal, five-year ambition, that part of that is that we said we want to be a congregation that does disability ministry well. So it's an area of ministry we've been thinking about as a church. It's an area of ministry that's near and dear to my heart personally, not only because I get to be the pastor on staff who coordinates this ministry, uh, but also because my family is one of the many families here at New Life that have been impacted by disability. You know, after being born 16 weeks early and weighing one pound, my son Stephen spent the first 100 days of his life. I didn't think this would happen. Uh, in the neonatal ICU. And before he was released home, uh, the doctors told us that they didn't know if Stephen would ever walk or talk or see. Well, praise God, he can do all three of them. And if you spent a few minutes with him, you'd see the impact of cerebral palsy in his life, particularly with his speech. The last 20 years have really been a wonderful journey of helping Stephen to become a young man that God has designed him to be. Well, here at New Life, we've also been learning and growing through the years, seeking to make our church feel welcome and inclusive to all who walk through the doors. And we have come a long way, but we also have a long way to go. So today with you, I want to look at a short passage of Scripture from Luke's Gospel. And in this passage, we're going to see something I think remarkable, that disability ministry is close to God's heart, and it needs to be close to ours as well. So our text is Luke 16, Luke 7, verse 16 through 23, sorry. And let me just say, we're starting in the middle of a section. What's happened here is that Jesus has just healed a Roman centurion's son. He just raised a widow's son to life. He was a, a, a widow. Her only son had died, and Jesus Jesus was there at the funeral procession and he raised her son to life. And so we pick up in Luke's gospel in verse 16 at this event that fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. 
And this report about him, Jesus that is, spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now we'll begin with verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So let me just pause there, right? So these things, the things we just read about, this report about Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist reported them to him because he was in prison. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me for a moment? Lord, as we meditate on your word, I ask and pray that you would bless our time together and use this to help us see more of you, to love you more, and as we do, use it to grow our love for those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my framework, our framework this morning is really straightforward. We're just going to look at the question that was asked of Jesus, the answer that Jesus gave, and we're going to think about what that means for us today here in Escondido. So the question, the answer, and the implications for you and for me. The question, right? John, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Did you find that question to be surprising? Were you shocked by that question? You should be, we should be. I mean, after all, John the Baptist was born to give witness to the Messiah. Like while he was in the womb of his mother, it was said, this kid is gonna be the one who's gonna give witness to the coming Messiah. And Luke's gospel begins with the account then of John's birth and his calling from God to be a forerunner to the Messiah. A full 40% of the first three chapters of Luke's gospel are dedicated to telling us about John the Baptist and his ministry. For you engineers, it's 65 out of 170 verses. Of course, on top of all that, John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. Right, so, so knowing all of that, I mean, it's surprising that, G, that John would ask Jesus, are, are you the one who is to come? Or, or shall we look for another? Right? John's almost like wondering, like, did I get this wrong? Like, what's going on here? Right? It's, it's a shocking question. And we aren't told why John was asking the question. There have been multiple explanations that have been uh, suggested, but to me there's one that really seems to fit the facts. Because we know that John was in prison for calling Herod the Tetrarch to repentance for his unlawful marriage. You can read about it earlier in Luke's Gospel in chapter 3. 
So in our, in our day and age, what we would say is that John the Baptist spoke truth to power. And as a result, he wound up in jail. But John had expected the Messiah to come in, in power and in acts of judgment, not in acts of mercy. And he had proclaimed in Luke 3 that when the Messiah comes, quote, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So I think it's reasonable for us to conclude that, that John was wondering why Jesus wasn't bringing judgment, especially or particularly against Herod. Now again, that, that might be surprising to us, but I think we can understand it, right? Because when the, when the circumstances of our lives don't match up with our expectations of God, it can cause us to doubt, or at least to wonder what God is up to, to ask the question why, right? Why God? Why? Why, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? Why is this happening now? That's kind of what's going on here with John. So we can understand, we can understand it while it may be surprising. So let's take a look at the answer that, John, that Jesus gave to John and to his disciples. Excuse me. So Jesus gives an answer. And he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Quoting one author who was reflecting on this passage, he wrote this. In Jesus' mind, the primary indication of his being the Messiah was his ministry to the physically disabled and the socially weak and alienated. Let me say that again. In Jesus' mind, the primary indication of his being the Messiah was his ministry to the physically disabled and socially weak and alienated. That's what Jesus is saying. John says, are you the one? He says, yeah, I'm the one. Look at my ministry to the physically disabled, the socially weak, and the alienated. Of course I'm the one. That proves that I'm the one. I think that comment is a, a fair comment, and it's true on a couple of different levels. So I want to unpack it a bit. On one level, it's true because the actions that are listed there uh, in Luke chapter 7, they are all, they're, they're all fulfillment of Scripture. All the amazing things that John's disciples see and hear that Jesus is doing come right out of the book of Isaiah, various places in Isaiah. But they all come out of the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we are told that every one of those actions will be performed by the Messiah, by the Savior, right? So it's true that, that Jesus is fulfilling scripture here. But Jesus isn't merely checking off items on his to-do list, right? That's the point. Each of these amazing interactions that Jesus has with the disabled, the weak and the alienated are not simply business transactions for him. You know, Jesus isn't looking at the metrics that his father gave him for Messiah and then making sure he's checking off the metrics. And I don't know about you, but friends, I find that when I read a passage like this, sort of in, in, in how I'm wired and because I went to seminary, 
I focus so much on the unfolding of God's plan of salvation and the interconnectedness of Scripture and what I would call the apologetic value of a passage like this that, that I tend to diminish the actions of Jesus really to ammunition for evangelism rather than reflections of his character, right? This is what I mean, right? I would say, I look at this and would want to say to somebody, look at what Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus was born. And then look at what Jesus did. See, it proves that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Son of God. And I kind of stop there. And I don't, I, don't let, I don't let a text like this soak in as a reflection of Jesus' character. But I need to. Well, on another level, when you look at that list, you realize that, you know, apart from the, 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 the line preaching good news to the poor, apart from that, all of these actions are things that only God can do, right? All of them. Let me just pick two of them. Uh, it, the lepers were healed, right? And, and we read that and we're all very familiar with it. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. I love it, right? Because the Old Testament law, if you had leprosy and someone who did not have leprosy came close to you and touched you, they were considered unclean. With the leprosy, you were considered unclean. It meant you couldn't go to, the, to, to certain places in the temple. You couldn't participate in worship until the leprosy was gone. And if someone who was healthy touched you, they were considered unclean. So now they had to go through this whole purification ritual before they could worship. That's the way it worked. We kind of understand that today, right? Because now we worry about COVID exposure. If someone has COVID and you're around them too long, you got to go get tested, right? It was kind of like that. But Jesus came on the scene, and when he touched someone with leprosy, he did not become unclean. They became clean. He healed them. And it's amazing, and it's beautiful. And there's a, an illustration that I cannot resist using, and the men in Bible study know that I love this one. But, but if you want to understand, the, you know, if you want to get a picture of this, I think this works. Imagine a mud puddle on the ground, and imagine that you have on your hand a white glove. And if you take your hand with its white glove and you dip it into the mud puddle and you pull it out of the mud puddle, what do you expect to happen, right? Your, the glove is muddy. That's what we expect. That's how it works. When Jesus showed up on the scene, there was a mud puddle and he put a white glove on his hand and he put his hand into the puddle and he pulled it out and the glove was clean and the mud puddle became glovey. Okay, that's sort of a, how wild this is, that he could heal someone with leprosy and make them clean. So unexpected, so unusual. Only God can do that. So these are things that only God can do. And the dead are raised up. It was, it's in Luke's gospel just before we got there, but Jesus spoke a word. He just spoke a word and a dead man came to life. Only God can do that. So when God came in human flesh, he was intentional about reaching out to the physically disabled and the socially weak and the alienated. And while these actions certainly did reveal his power, they were not shows of power. Because if they were, that would have reduced the recipients of his healing to mere props in a magic show. No, Jesus healed them out of his heart of mercy. So John, John most likely expected Jesus to begin his ministry with, these, with powerful acts of judgment. Right? He, he probably expected Jesus to be more like, a, like what we think of a, as a superhero in a movie. Right? 
my family and I have been, been trying to, to figure out the whole Marvel universe, right? So we've been watching some of the Marvel superhero movies. And I imagine what John had in his mind was that Jesus was going to look a little bit more like Thor or Hulk, right? He was going to come and he was going to make the bad guys pay with acts of power. But instead, Jesus came more like Aragorn in Tolkien's Return of the King, who revealed himself as the true king of Gondor by healing many people after a battle. It's in the book, they left it out of the movie, unfortunately, uh, but it was, it was the healing that he brought that revealed himself to be the true king. So the question is why, excuse me, why the healing instead of Thor-like acts of power? He did it, friends, because it is a reflection of who he is in his very nature. If we were to flip back to Exodus 34, there's this magnificent passage. Amazing, really. God reveals himself to Moses. It's, it's a self-disclosure. God tells Moses what he is like. You want to know what God is like? God tells Moses, this is who I am. And it begins with this. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. Our translation says merciful. Other translations pick the word compassionate. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. Both fine translations. They get at the same idea. God is merciful. He's compassionate. He has a heart. He shows his heart towards other people. That's who God is. And so that's who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. And so Jesus, in his answer to John the Baptist, is showing us that one sign, one sign of the kingdom of God is compassion for individuals and families impacted by disability. God has a heart for disability ministry. And, it, and that really shouldn't surprise us because there are glimmers of this in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 9, 19, there's a law. It says, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Now think about that. You shouldn't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You know, what's it have in, in mind? It, it, it has in mind the people who might take advantage of someone with disability. It has in mind those who might, might make fun of someone with a disability, right? And it, God says, you don't do that. You must not do that. Those are my people. I have compassion for them. Don't you dare do that. That's part of God's character. And then in Zephaniah 3, we read this, looking to a future time, future for Zephaniah. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Right? He said, there's going to be a day when, when the lame and the outcast, I'm going to change your shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus was doing as he intentionally went to those impacted by disability and he healed them. He was changing their shame into praise. Pastor James mentioned it in the introduction. There, there are writing, extra-biblical writings from the time of Christ, and they indicate that those with disability were excluded from temple worship. So by healing them, Jesus turned outsiders into insiders. 
by healing them, Jesus gave them access into the temple and to everything that that represented, right? To being in a right relationship with God. And so through his ministry, Jesus is showing us that individuals with a disability have intrinsic value, that they are created in the image of God, that God loves them, he cares about them, and the kingdom of God belongs to them. Now I want to pause for a minute and take what Pastor Ted calls a sidebar here. Because everything that we just looked at is good news for all of us. It's good news for every human being on the planet. Because scripture makes it clear that spiritually, we are beyond disabled, we are dead. We cannot make ourselves holy. And if you think about it, death is the ultimate disability, isn't it? Ultimate inability. And in our text this morning, Jesus gives us a promise at the very end, right? He, he said, we will be blessed if we are not offended by him. We will be blessed if we're not offended by him. The root word there in Greek, I just want to say it because if I say what it is, you'll, you'll understand it better. The root word is skandalizo, right? Skandalizo, scandalize. You hear it in there? That's the, the word scandalize comes from there. So what Jesus is saying is this, if you find that being affiliated with him, if you find being affili affiliated with Jesus is scandalous, you will not receive his blessing. But if you recognize your own inability to love God with all of your heart and soul and strength and might, and your inability to love your neighbor as yourself, and if you instead cling to Jesus as the one who alone can make you right with God, you will be blessed, right? He's saying you will be made clean like the leper. You will be brought to life like the dead son. You will be in a right relationship with God because of him. So friends, let me just say, if you're here this morning, you're still considering the claims of Christ, don't be scandalized by him. Cling to him and you will be in a right relationship with God. You will receive his blessing. So it's good news for all of us. Let me jump back a moment then to, to thinking about disability ministry. Because God's heart for disability ministry didn't stop with Jesus. It carried on into the early church. We see it as the apostles continued on with the ministry of healing. And then history records that from that point on, Christians through the ages have always made an effort to care for those with disabilities. So if we know that God has a heart for disability, and we know that now, then, then we, we won't be and shouldn't be surprised when we get up to Luke chapter 14. Because there in Luke 14, Jesus gives a command. I, I did the working, I, I really looked at this in Greek, in the original language, there is no way around it. This is a command. And it's a command for all of us. Jesus said this in Luke 14, 13. He said, when you give a feast, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. When you have a dinner, Jesus is saying, when you have a dinner party, these are the people you need to invite. I command you to do this. It's a reflection of his character and of his love. And friends, if we are to invite them to our home table, we must certainly invite them to the Lord's table here at New Life. We must. It's a command. 
So that said, let, let me share this with you. Did you know that 20% of Americans have a disability? One in five, according to the CDC, one in five have a disability, often hiding in the shadows, right? That's why it's a shocking number, I think. Other studies have revealed that 80%, 80% of families touched by disabilities don't attend church. And often, the studies are real, they often don't come because it's simply too hard or because they've been made to feel unwelcome. Michael Beetz is a reformed theologian and he's a father of a daughter with profound physical disabilities. And he relates how they've been invited to churches. He's been invited to preach at various churches. And there are times when they've arrived only to discover that they have to carry their daughter and her wheelchair up many, many flights of stairs to get into the church, even to worship. There have been times where they've dropped their daughter off at Sunday school or nursery, and the workers have actually asked, you're not going to leave her here with us, are you? Friends, those types of experiences can make the church feel like a, a real city on a hill. And I mean by that physically inaccessible and socially inhospitable. And of all places, the church should be a model of the accessible community, right? Of a, what I mean by that, the church should be a point of entry for everyone into understanding and knowing God's love. Now, despite the significant differences we have in theology with the Roman Catholic Church, there's a beautiful example of the accessible community in the cathedral that was built not too long ago up in LA. And in that Roman Catholic Church, they did something a little bit different. You know, there's usually a, 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 a platform, a dais, right? And up in the Roman Catholic Church, there's an altar there, which has a lot of symbolic significance. And usually you have to go up a couple stairs to get there. Well, when they built the new cathedral, uh, instead of seating that's level and then the dais, they did theater-style seating going towards the dais. But then on one half, of it a long ways back they start a gradual slope up to the altar so that anybody in a walker in a wheelchair no matter who you are you can it's showing you have access to what that represents right that's that's an example of accessibility of communicating clearly that this is an accessible community So, so what are some practical implications? I want to end just for us as a church community with two, two implications. I think first, what this really makes clear to us is that, that we as a community must do whatever it takes to accommodate our discipleship so that individuals impacted by disability understand the love that God has for them in Christ. We must. We simply must do that. It may, it, may, it may take the form of church programs and church staff or volunteers, but it's also going to take place one-on-one -on -one in conversations and in fellowship. So we need to accommodate our discipleship. And, but remember that through his actions, Jesus not only demonstrated God's love, but he made outsiders into insiders. He brought them into the covenant community. So how do we mirror that here at New Life? I would suggest this, that in addition to accommodating our discipleship, we, we need to develop ministries of hospitality. I don't mean formally, I don't mean programmatically. Certainly that's included, but we need, to, we need to develop the kind of hospitality here where we welcome 
befriend and love and serve alongside of those with disabilities. We need to be that kind of community. That's what Christ calls us to. So as I wrap it up, I'll just say this, right? We've seen that the heart of disability ministry is God's heart for disability ministry, right? The heart of it is God's heart for it. But it leaves the question open then. So if our church, if New Life is going to committed to engaging individuals touched by disability with the gospel and enfolding them into all areas of congregational life and ministry, what would that look like? Right? What would it look like? Well, I have an example. It's not of a church, but it's of a community that I think gives us a vision, a, a picture of what that might look like. The community I have in mind is, is actually Martha's Vineyard, which if, if you're familiar with it, is an island off the, off the coast of Massachusetts. And there's a wonderful example there that took place actually between the years 1694 and up until 1952. In 1694, a man by the name of Jonathan Lambert settled on Martha's Vineyard. He was deaf, and he carried a recessive gene for deafness. Because of the, the geographic isolation of the island, think 1694, right? Uh, there was a lot of intermarriage, frequent intermarriage on the island. And so by the mid-1800s, depending on which little town you were in, the number of people who were deaf was as high as one in four, sometimes as low as one in 25. But every town, every little pocket had individuals who were deaf. So as a result, everyone on the island learned to use sign language. Even when they didn't have a deaf family member, they learned sign language. And they didn't use the sign language just to communicate with their deaf friends. Fishermen would use it to communicate at distances. People would use it in church. And if a group of hearing people were speaking and, and their deaf friend joined them, they would all switch to sign language. So what the result of that, that were that there were no social barriers on Martha's Vineyard for someone who was deaf. And in fact, those who were deaf were well-educated. In fact, some of the best educated in the country at the time. They held the same jobs, the same income levels. They married and had kids. They served in the community. They weren't segregated. They participated in the full life of the community. In a word, deafness became ordinary. It was not disabling. I don't know what it will look like for New Life to, to sort of mirror that, but that gives us a vision of what it could be like, sort of. We're not there yet, friends. We, have, we certainly have a long, long way to go, but I'm glad that as a church, we're committed to working towards something like this. Right? It's one tangible way that we can show our love for God and our love to our neighbors. And so I invite you to, to join me and join all of us on the journey as we, as we develop this, strive to get better at it, because God calls us to it. Um, I'm looking forward to just seeing where, where we go. It's going to be awesome. And uh, I'm glad that we're all on this journey together. Let me close this in prayer before we uh, continue our worship service. Father, thank you for your word from Luke and what it shows us of you, of your character, of your heart, of your love for all individuals and your love for individuals impacted by disability. Lord, may we as a church get better and engaging the individuals and families impacted by the gospel, engaging them with the gospel and enfolding them into the life of our congregation. Lord, give us the wisdom we need. Give us the courage we need. Give us the vision to see those around us that we can reach out to. Help us to be better at this, Lord. Not so that we can 
so that we can say to the world, look at us, look at what we're doing, not at all, Lord, but so that you would be glorified, that you would be made famous, and that your love would be made known to our friends and neighbors around us. Um, Lord, we ask for your wisdom in this. We ask that you'd be strong for us where we're weak and we are very weak. Um, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Kevin Dane, Associate Pastor of New Life Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.